This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Well, we've made it five weeks, which I guess is a win. We're still going. I'm Joel Godet. Welcome into Play by Playcast, everybody. Josh Maurer, voice of the Pawtucket Red Sox, and the UMass Minutemen football and men's basketball teams is our guest here today. If you are just finding the podcast, welcome. Glad to have you along with us. If you are a regular, thanks for coming on back week after week. Uh, If you're new again, though, uh, you can find previous editions of this podcast. They are archived both on Stitcher and on iTunes. You can just scroll back through the feed. Our previous guests, uh, Carter Blackburn, Andy Demetra, Doug Greenwald, and then last week we had Ben Holden from CBS Sports, uh, CBS Sports Network, who was a really awesome guest and really delved into a bunch of different topics. Uh, Some of it was pretty wonky. We got into some of the technical aspects of broadcasting and play-by-play broadcasting in particular. We're going to do some of that in a much different aspect today, and I'm really excited to have Josh Maurer on today. He's the play-by-play voice of the Pawtucket Red Sox, which is a very... Um, I don't know if vaunted is the right word, but uh, very sought-after position, I guess you could say, in the baseball broadcasting world and the broadcasting world in general. Josh is also the voice of the UMass Minutemen for both football and men's basketball. But the conversation that Josh and I had was really cool on a couple of different aspects. Uh, Number one, it was the first one of these podcast interviews that was done in person. I don't know how you guys out there feel. Personal preference. I love interviewing people in person a lot more than I do on the phone just to get that kind of personal interaction. Uh, you can talk back and forth a little bit more. It's much less question and answery and much more conversational. Uh, so I like that aspect of it. I think that comes through uh, pretty clearly and pretty quickly, and I think this interview uh, benefits from that. But we also dive into some wonky things that we really haven't touched on on the podcast so far. We talk about uh, voicing and controlling your instrument, and we talk about the psychology of this business and being able to kind of keep your spirits up, uh, continue the hunt, the quest to keep getting better, to keep moving forward, to keep pushing forward, even when at times uh, it looks like uh, that's a tough road. Uh, so it was fun to have Josh on, uh, a guy who uh, is in the Mid-American Con- well, was in the Mid-American Conference uh, with me at, at UMass. They're no longer in the league, uh, but a guy that I get to see every so often, and uh, he was uh, great to share some time pregame when the Paw Sox were in Indianapolis a couple of weeks ago. That being said... When Josh and I sat down, I hit the recorder and I said, Josh, uh, pick an episode you would like to be on the podcast. I think we had one episode released at that point. Josh said, I will go for the fifth. Just so happened he was the fifth guest. So uh, things fell in order. Josh Maurer is our fifth guest here on Play by Play Cast. I was a little ESP. We'll go in order. That was well done. Thank you. Josh Maurer is our guest today. He's the voice of the UMass Minutemen and the Pawtucket Red Sox. And we actually sit here looking out at Victory Field. Uh, you said probably top two road trips in the International League? It's definitely up there. But, you know, these towns in the in the Western Division, you almost get a little big league feel. We get to come here. We get to come to Columbus, which is beautiful, a new ballpark that's also downtown like Indianapolis, Louisville, 
is a fantastic setup, even Toledo. So a lot in the West and even in the South now in the International League. New ballparks in Charlotte, Durham has been redone. So, yeah, it, uh, once we get out of our North Division, which only happens, unfortunately, once a season to each of these beautiful ballparks, it, it definitely has a different kind of feel. Give me the rundown of, of everything that you've gone through at this point. We were just talking 35 years old. Um, Pawtucket, UMass, Trenton, yep. Charleston, Brockton. Yes. Um, what am I missing? Uh, well, PTI, which we can get to. Uh, give me the give me the Reader's Digest version of the hopscotch you've played. Well, I can I can go back to college, which was the University of Maryland. So I I graduated in two thousand three, uh, and I was at Maryland during a very very advantageous time for a young guy who wanted to do sports play by play because the basketball team went to two Final Fours and won a national championship, and then the football team had its unquestioned golden age. They went to it, uh, and uh, a, a, it was the Peach Bowl my senior year. But the year before that, they somehow won the ACC. It was Ralph Friedgen's first year, out of nowhere, and they made a BCS bowl game. We went to the Orange Bowl, and and so being a student broadcaster at Maryland then was as good of a timing as you could possibly ask for. So I got some great experience when I was there, uh, and and I've I've hopped around between minor league baseball broadcasting jobs and and college broadcasting opportunities but my first job was in Brockton. Brockton had a, an independent league baseball team that opened in 2002 so for the 2003 season their second one I got hired as the studio host pregame postgame show and also a media relations assistant and it was an awful job and I don't mind saying that it was just terrible. The people were great but it was an awful job. Well it, I, I suppose so. <laughs> you know we we had a studio WBET which was based in Brockton and it was this old building downtown, and I drove there every night, and nobody was in the station, but I would run the board and do the pre- and the post-game shows from the studio, and the only thing else that was alive in that station was a cat. The cat had three legs. His name was Ed, and the reason they had a cat was because they was told there was a mouse problem. <laughs> so instead of getting some exterminators or whatever they needed to get rid of the they mice, got a three-legged they got a cat. three-legged cat, and he just lived there at all times. So Ed and I, Ed the cat and I, we spent a lot of time together during that summer. Uh, at what point are you reconsidering what you're doing with your life? Very immediately, because <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. I didn't know if that was the way to go. Actually, the next baseball season, I worked in production, and I, I didn't do play-by-play broadcasting. I went to work for the Philadelphia Phillies just as a production guy for the TV network, and, and that was something that I thought maybe I had interest in. But, and this is, I guess, a good lesson for guys that are trying to make it in the business, the general manager from Brockton, in the interim had moved to take the general manager job with the Charleston River Dogs, Charleston, South Carolina, which is a beautiful, beautiful place and a, a single A affiliate of the Yankees. And he called me the summer or before the, the summer of 2005. And he said, Hey, my radio guy just left. I don't want to post the job. Do you want it? And I thought for about 30 seconds and I said, yep, sure. And that was it. So I went back into baseball broadcasting with, with that phone call. You said something interesting in there and I'm curious about, uh, People always talk about do what you want to do as one avenue to go about kind of making your path in this business. And it's if you want to be a play-by-play guy, go be a play-by-play guy. If you want to be a talk show host, go be a talk show host. Taking that Phillies job, what are you thinking as far as let me go? I mean, are you thinking let me go put myself in a different situation and see what kind of doors that opens? Or or how are you approaching that kind of an avenue? You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Joel, because that was, I think to this day, still one of the toughest decisions I ever made. I had had an offer to go broadcast for the Battle Creek Yankees. 
they were doing 140 games in the Midwest League, internet only that season. And it would have been my first full play-by-play job in baseball. And this is before internet only is posh. This was, yeah, exactly. I mean, this was like, oh my God, internet only? Like (laughs) nobody will listen to this. And so that was that. And then the Phillies thing. And I, I, I swear, I think I lost sleep for a week over trying to decide what to do with that summer. This was 2004. And I, you know what? I, I think it was the experience in Brockton, but then there was also a part of me that said, all right, maybe I'll make some contacts. I'll meet some major league guys and take a few road trips, which I did. And uh, it, it was interesting. I grew up as a Phillies fan. I'm a Philadelphia native, and that was the first season of their new ballpark, Citizens Bank Park. So I thought that would be cool to, to work there at the very beginning of it. Uh, it it's, it's funny, though. Even in retrospect, all these years later, I do look back and think that was a mistake. I probably should have stayed on the play-by-play track. Now, it ended up working out okay, but only very luckily so because of the connection I had with that general manager who ended up going to Charleston. But it was very, very likely, I would I would think, had that not happened, that I may never have gotten a baseball job again because I had chosen to go the production route. What did you get from being there, though? Did it give you something? Even if you look back at it now and say, I benefited from being there because of XYZ. I think I got a feel, a better feel even though I had worked some jobs behind the scenes in TV production before you know, in high school and college, did some internships and, some, and, and things of that nature. But I, I, working that season with, with Phillies TV in particular, I think you do gain a better appreciation for how that works. And, I, it, you know, hopefully someday, and we all want to be doing games on television, and, and it's very possible to do that these days. I would say that if you're – if you're versed in their knowledge of what's happening in the truck uh, with the camera guys, with the audio guys, that really benefits you later on down the road. So I think that's one big thing that probably, or at least hopefully, I did gain from that experience. You get to pick some brains, too. I mean, people always say you're you're around these people. You get to You get to learn from the people that do it best. Did it give you something that maybe, hey, just going to Brockton or Charleston and honing your craft on your own and sending out emails – doesn't give you so to speak i suppose it did i think your interaction though is limited as a production guy i mean you're in the truck you're you're spending time and actually with the phillies at that point they had built a control room in the wachovia center which was so you're not even there almost a mile away right in the in the basement of the the hockey basketball venue in philadelphia as opposed to even at the ballpark most of the time so uh i I got to know the broadcasters a, a decently well. Harry Callis was still the play-by-play voice of the Phillies at that point. And for those who don't know Harry, he was just the best. <laughs> Harry is the reason that I wanted to become a play-by-play guy because I grew up listening to him and Richie Ashburn call Phillies games on the radio when I was young. Uh, so I got to know Harry before he passed away, and I think that was definitely a bonus. Chris Wheeler, he was terrific. Larry Anderson, the the talent was was really good to work with that summer, so I think that helped. And you meet some of the producers, some of the visiting broadcasters that would take the time to talk to you. Um, I, I wouldn't say, for those that are thinking, well, maybe this is something that I should try just to get get that production experience. I wouldn't say it's a necessarily bad thing. But the way you started this by saying, well, if you want to be a play-by-play guy, go do play-by-play, I'd still think that that's the better route to go. So you go to Charleston. Uh, how long are you there? I was in Charleston for the better part of three full years four seasons and uh it parlayed itself into a college job down there too my first college job i had gotten at the university of maryland eastern shore umes and they are in the MEAC. MEAC is a it's a college uh a conference made up of hbcu and uh, historically black colleges and universities 
not a lot of information on some of those players. No, no. It was a very, very good learning experience for me. I think learning how to prepare. We broadcasted double headers, and a lot of it I did by myself. The men and women played played uh, right played after. the same teams. Yeah, yeah. They, they played the same teams. It, it limits travel costs, and it makes it easier for the venues to just open the arena one time. So... You would, you would start, let's say, on a Monday night. You'd start the women's game at 5 o'clock. They would play from 5 to 7. And then you'd go right into the men's pregame show from 7 to 7.30. And then the men would tip off at 7.30. So you would be on calling a doubleheader of basketball from 5 to 9.30 straight. A lot of it was by myself. So that that was a very, very interesting way to learn. It was like a crash course. All right, how do you fill up a basketball broadcast? Which you can do kind of easily. I mean, I think you would agree, Joel, that filling up a basketball game is so different than doing a lot of other sports. I think it's the easiest probably yep. from that standpoint, but the the dead time and being able to be an analyst in basketball too is sometimes I hate doing basketball solo because I'm looking at the game differently. Like when I'm doing it with a partner, I'm worrying about certain things XYZ and I will let him search for the the color things so to speak. When you're doing it by yourself, you've got to look I feel like at the at the game in a different perspective. One thing that I like to say, and I totally believe this is true, and I know we haven't talked a lot about baseball mechanics, but when you're doing a, a football broadcast or a basketball broadcast or hockey, which are the major sports that, that most of us are, are doing these days when we're working in play-by-play, 90% of the time there is something happening. So the play-by-play just kind of does itself. You're yeah. just describing what you're seeing in front of you. When you're doing a baseball broadcast, 90% of the time, nothing is happening. And so you have to then fill in those blanks. It's so different in that regard. Baseball is unlike any other sport that you broadcast, and it's a completely different skill set, I think. Uh, and, and in that regard, much more difficult, I think, to do well than those other sports. Even though people say, oh, how do you, how do you call a basketball game? It moves so fast. Yeah, but how many things can really happen? You think about it, he's either passing, shooting, dribbling, rebounding, turning it up. I mean, there's like 10 things that can happen. So then you're just coming up with different ways to say the same thing. But in baseball, there's a million different things that can happen. You could come to the park and see something new every day for 144 straight games. And between the two of us, we haven't seen half of them yet. That's right. Which is the best part about it. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, Let me dovetail off of that real quick. Uh, You talk about um, the, the mechanics of doing different things. What's the best thing that you've done to better yourself as a broadcaster in that regard? Well, I, I think the one thing that I try to do, and I would really encourage others, listen back to your broadcast and and try to listen to almost every word of it if you can. I know during baseball that's very difficult to do. We, we just don't have enough time in the day. But especially during, if you're doing a football season or a basketball or a hockey season, take the next morning and listen back to a recording of what you did because a you're going to be your own harshest critic you're going to hear what you did like and what you didn't like and you're probably not going to do that again if you didn't like it uh i i think you know we tend to start for whatever reason changing things using different cliches or or catchphrases uh, describing things certain ways, and it just happens. You, sometimes you don't notice it unless you listen back, and then you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was doing that last night, and then you're going to stop it. Uh, so I still try to do that, even after the, all these years, um, listen back as religiously as I can to the broadcast and, and kind of self-critique. Uh, you know, it, it, there's there's plenty of ways to do it. Obviously, eliciting feedback from others who are in the in the field or, or, or especially guys that are hiring in the field Tell me what you don't like and what I can work on. That's big. And I try to do that, too, um, and listen to it. And you can't have thin skin. You want 
criticism because that's the only way that you're going to get better. And we're all just trying to get better. I, Marv Albert's still trying to get better. Yeah. So uh, listen, listen to what others have to say. You don't always have to agree with it, but at least take it into, into consideration. When you listen back now, what are you listening for? I'm listening for – the main thing I'm listening for – are uh, things that I might be doing that I don't like that I didn't realize I was doing. Uh, and it might be using the same term over and over again to describe a play. Uh, it, it's just kind of habits that you fall into. Uh, I'm listening to the way my voice sounds during an exciting moment. That's something that I've worked on for years. Uh, I, I don't want to sound over the top excited, but I want to. I don't want to sound too boring. It's something. It's like a. It's a balance we're always trying to find, and uh, so I'm. I'm listening for that, and I. I always want to hear how is my story, especially during baseball. How is that playing? Does it sound natural? Am I forcing it? Am I letting the play-by-play get enough airtime, or am I spending too much time telling, telling the story and not doing the game justice? Uh, and and it's always. It's always kind of a balancing act, uh, and, and this changes. I don't know why it changes, but from week to week, it can change. So I think it's important to stay on top of it and make sure that you're doing it the way that you like to be doing it and the way you want others to hear you. Let's talk about the voice thing. Um, when you go and listen back to an exciting moment or an exciting play or just anything in general, uh, what, are you, what are you listening for? What, are you, what tells you that you did it right from a voice standpoint? Um, I mean, there's so many different ways to analyze it. Like, I, I drove it down too much, or I sounded too screamy, or I mean, what stands out to you as I like it or I don't? Here's an interesting. I, it, that's a hard question for me to answer because I think it's just something that you you can tell. You, know, you say, all right, I like that, or I didn't. But I was given some feedback not too long ago that I I tended to at exciting moments sound like I was growling a little bit, like my voice would get a little rasp or like I was kind of forcing the words out as opposed to sounding natural and not inflecting my voice in a different way than I would be because it was an exciting moment. Uh, so recently, that's something I've spent the better part of 12 months really trying to, to go away from. What'd you do? Try not to growl. I, I don't, I don't, yeah, that, that's, that's the main thing. And it's also, it's something where you're not necessarily going to notice it until somebody points it out. You know, when I when I graduated, I'm from Philadelphia. When I graduated college, somebody told me, he said, you really need to lose that accent. I said, what accent? He said, oh, you've got that bad Philadelphia, Philly accent, you know? And I I said, I do? And then I started listening to tapes and I said, oh my God, I do. I've got a Philly accent. That sucks. So I did. I spent the better part of, I don't know, two or three years trying to lose all the words that I said with a Philadelphia. Well, now you park the car, so it's just... <laughs> that one would be harder to pick up. You'd have to spend your whole life up in Boston, I think, to, to get that one. Uh, so that's something, too. Uh, accent, I'm still listening for words. To, is that creeping back into my vernacular? Uh, the, 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 sound, the inflection of my voice, am I sounding too forced, doing the quote-unquote growling? Uh, Vocal coaching, have you done that kind of stuff? Or you know what I did? Stuff? I, I did a a three-month voice therapy, speech therapy session, actually at a hospital. Oh, wow. Uh, yep, and I was having problems with my voice. This was about four years ago. I was I was really losing my voice easily, and it was scary. If I were driving a truck, I wouldn't have cared. But obviously doing what we do, if you're yeah. losing your voice easily, that uh, 
that that can be somewhat worrisome. So I went to several doctors and uh, I ended up getting recommended. They said, you should try this speech therapy. And I, I had known a friend or two who had done it. And it was really, really helpful. You learn, among other things, how to breathe and how important it is the way you work your breath when you're doing anything, just talking, running, exercising in everyday life, not just when you're on the air calling play-by-play of sports. The way that you breathe is so important to your general health, but especially the health of your vocal cords. It's, it, it, I learned a ton doing that. I think it was 12 sessions with a, with a speech therapist. I don't want to pull your secrets, but like, is this like, is this a common thing, or is this only at hospitals in New England? No, it's very common. Okay. I think mostly, well, this doctor in particular, I mean, she, she was at a hospital, but you could just go to general practice through a speech therapist. And she worked with mostly singers, uh, performers, theater performers. Uh, even there were, I think, professors in, in near UMass. There's a ton of colleges, and so professors who give long lectures, they would go to her for help about how to use their voice effectively. Interesting. And I was the first sports play-by-play broadcaster that she had ever worked with. But I, I found it extremely helpful. And there's exercises you can do uh, to, to strengthen your vocal cords, to strengthen your throat. And, uh, and it worked. And knock on wood, I'm knocking on a piece of wood as I say this, I have not Formica had... Formica or something. Yeah, there. exactly. Right, probably not. <laughs> the, I have not had those same problems since I went through the speech therapy. What kind of... How hard a buy-in is that? Because... A couple of years ago, I, I did some like vocal coaching, and I guess probably similar things. Um, and I mean, for a while, I was like doing vocal warm-ups. I remember we mm-hmm. we played basketball. Ball State played basketball at San Diego State, and I walked outside the arena because I didn't want anybody to hear me. And mm-hmm. I went out by like the production trucks because there was nobody there, and I was like doing singing. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Did, did you ever do any of that kind of stuff? Did, did. you feel goofy doing that stuff? Did I, you feel like it helped? I, I did. I don't know how much that helped, uh, and I kind of stopped <laughs> doing it. I hope I hope my speech therapist isn't listening to this podcast. The other stuff was great, though. Yeah, the other stuff was great. I, I, I don't know. I, I I remember trying it a lot in the car when I was on my way over to an arena for a broadcast. But the biggest thing that I took away with it is the way that you use your breath and how that helps you get the power for your voice that you need, especially to get through some exciting moments when you're calling play-by-play. One of the biggest problems that we have, and it's, it's counterintuitive, when we breathe in, our, our chest, our lungs are supposed to inflate. But for some reason, after we're born, we've kind of taught ourselves to do the opposite. When you breathe in, your chest deflates. And it's totally the opposite of what, you're, what you're, your body is naturally meant to do. Shoulders go up, all that. Yeah. Yep. So when you take a deep breath in, and it's, it's easier to explain when you're, when you're in person showing somebody this. But when you take a deep breath in, you want your chest to fill up and it should get big like you just ate a full meal. And then when you breathe out, that's when your chest should deflate. And that's when you get the full power out of your voice. How long did it take that to become natural and not think about during a game, am I breathing the right way? I think I'm still working on it. I work on it most, honestly, while I'm running or while I'm working out if I'm at the gym. Interesting. Yeah. So if I'm on a treadmill, I'm thinking, okay, breathe the right way. And my speech therapist, she taught me this and she's right. She actually thought that a lot of my issues I was having could have come from even just working out incorrectly and and straining my muscles that include your throat from not breathing right while while you're doing a workout. Interesting, right? I'm fast. I mean, yeah. that's crazy because I never would have, like, I, I, I know the vocal, like, people have said go to vocal specialists and things like that. I never would have thought about it carrying over to regular life Just issues. Just running. Yeah. yeah. 
or that it would have impacted each other that way. But um, I, I, I learned a whole lot. It, it was very eye-opening to me. And, and I will say, as a plug for anybody who's thinking about this, <laughs> it will help. It really does. And that's the, I think that's the most amazing thing, because anytime anybody says it, and I always love asking the question, because I'm always curious to see if people say they've done it or haven't done it, and if it helped or not, because I always feel like in the back of your mind, you're saying, okay, they're telling me to get a vocal coach, but that... Uh, Yep. This guy over here just talks. He doesn't. But then you talk to people who, I mean, some people have a God-given gift and some people have to work at it. And, and, and I'll say there's this. There's no shame in that. No, there isn't. I don't have the big broadcaster booming voice. I, I, Me neither. I, I don't have it. And uh, I, I don't think the, the speech therapy sessions aren't going to help you with that. You can't change the way you sound, but you can change the way you use your mechanism to, to make you healthier and, and more effective for the long term is the way I would put it, I suppose. I want to go back to, uh, if I can go back on career path. Yes. We'll diverge back that way. Um, you're in Charleston for three years. Uh, how'd you wind up in Trenton? So that that's a uh, part of a longer story. When I went to Charleston, it was 2005 for baseball. What a town. Charleston is unquestionably awesome. one of awesome. the 10 greatest cities that most people have probably never been to in our country. Yeah. It's It's fantastic. Uh, I was lucky, but then I was—I didn't have a job outside of baseball season. So for a couple of years, I went back to the eastern shore of Maryland, and I was doing the, the UMES thing. It, it opened up then Charleston Southern University, which is in the Big South Conference, and they had a football program that was pretty good. And I kind of worked my way in there, and I did two seasons of their football and basketball. Anyway, uh, 2008 rolls around, and I'm, I'm living year-round in Charleston. I got hired at UMass. And... That football was, basketball job? It was football basketball. It was a full-time position as a director of broadcasting within the athletic department. It's not too Yeah, you know, you know a lot about that. I was thrilled to do it. Um, I left Charleston and I moved up to Amherst, Massachusetts. It was a big life change. I had never had a full-time job. So I had a full-time job, you know, nine to five, even when we didn't have games and state benefits and all that stuff, actual salary, the things that most broadcasters don't really get. <laughs> so it was, an, it was a new experience. I did this for three years, and I really loved it. There were some challenging moments. My administrator role really kind of grew as we, we developed a video department within athletics at UMass. There were, had been no video department. So I was really immersed in hiring, budgets, equipment purchasing, schematics and the layout of getting fiber run, all this stuff that I never, ever imagined that I would have to know about. Fiber what? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I did this for three years and it was becoming like a 120 hour a week job and I wasn't preparing for the games. I found myself just taking the play by play very secondary to the stresses that were coming with the full time administrator job. And it, it just, it dawned on me, and this was in the fall of 2011, I thought, I, I gotta, I, I, I don't think this is where I want to be going. And I, I decided I really wanted to try to go back into doing baseball. I had done five seasons. And I was fortunate enough, I went to a friend of mine who was the broadcaster for the Trenton Thunder. His name was Jay Burnham. Jay called me, as a matter of fact. Jay's a great broadcaster. He's in Richmond now. And he's one of the best play-by-play guys in the minor leagues. He had been in Trenton, but he had a weird situation. He was full-time there. He did sales. And the the front office, the way it was structured, he, even though he was the, the head broadcaster, was not traveling. That's right. Forgot about that. Jay called me in November of 2011 and asked if 
I knew of anybody to recommend to be his quote-unquote number two broadcaster in Trenton, which was the job, even though it was an internship, that traveled and did all 142 games. And I said, Jay, I don't have anybody to recommend, but I'm really interested. And you Dick chanted yourself. I did. <laughs> and he was, I think he was surprised. And, uh, you know, we talked about it for a little bit, and I worked it out with my bosses at UMass. And uh, so that's, anyway, that's how it came to be. So I went back to just being part-time doing the, the football and basketball, and then I went to Trenton. You glad, I mean, are you glad that your career path has taken the turns that it has? I mean, how was, because... You did the. You got out of the play-by-play. You did the Phillies thing. You gave up a full-time job, which is certainly a bet on yourself. Hey, I hope this works out. Are you happy that you you made those decisions and those twists and turns in hindsight that got you to where you are now? Very, very, very happy. And I think you have to always keep in mind, you know, it, decisions that you make, <laughs> they have such a domino effect on the rest of your life. Think about it. The day you decided which college you were going to, how that set a chain of events in motion that were going to basically decide the way your life was going to play out. Uh, it, similar to, to both of these decisions, but I'm, I'm, very, I'm extremely happy, today, obviously, with the way that uh, it, it worked out with, with going back into the baseball broadcasting and, and giving up the full-time deal. I would have never ever gotten considered for this Pawtucket Red Sox job, which I, I'm so happy at and I'm so fortunate to have gotten, would have never even been in consideration had I not gone to Trenton. And so uh, it worked out. I'm, I'm very fortunate that it did, but I'm, I'm glad that at least I took the risk to put myself in the position that it was possible. I want to hit you with a couple random things if I can. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Maryland. You mentioned going to the tournament. Um, I think it was probably I could be wrong on this, but I think it was 2002. I had read um, where you were sitting behind. Was it Nance and Jim Backer? Nance. Yeah, it was. Uh, walk me through those interactions and what it's like as a 20 year old to say hi to Jim Nance. The biggest, the biggest issue that has developed in my life from that experience was that you have the pinnacle of your career. Probably, I will never. I'm. I'm fairly certain I will never broadcast another Final Four. So you get to the you get the pinnacle and you're Putting twenty. A knock on UMass there. I, well, okay. Marcus yeah, right. Camby is walking through that door. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, God willing, yes. There's some great recruits coming in, and Derek Kellogg's doing a wonderful job. I will probably never broadcast a Final Four, and so you do it when you're twenty. And it was very difficult, just kind of emotionally, when I got out of college go from doing the level of games I was doing. And it doesn't really count when you're student radio. No. Did you did you get hired to do it? Not really. You're not getting paid. You just had to, you know, fight your way through the the chain of other students that that wanted those opportunities. But we, I was very spoiled. And it took me a millisecond once I graduated to realize how spoiled I was and how much I should have appreciated it while I was going through it in college. But kind of to answer your question, it was unbelievable. I mean, we did it and I went to two Final Fours, and then my senior year, which was a year Maryland was the defending national champion, this was 2003, they hit a buzzer beater in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Drew Nicholas, the team trailing by a point, hit a three-point shot with no time on the clock to beat UNC Wilmington. And they advanced to the second round, and they ended up going to the Sweet 16. That's still the favorite play I've ever called in my life. It was so great. I couldn't believe I called a buzzer beater. And Jim Nance was sitting there, and I remember after the game talking to Jim, and 
I said, oh, well, how was your call? He said, well, you know, I thought it was okay. You know, Packer kind of jumped on me a little bit. He said, how was your call? I said, well, yeah, I thought it was great. I had a blast. And we're just comparing the call of a buzzer beater in the NCAA tournament. He was so gracious. Jim came on our pregame show. He came on our pregame show at the Final Four in Atlanta. That's cool. Jim Nanston. Yeah, he was great. He was great. Uh, When you're a student, you end up getting access to things, I think, because people are just generally more – forgiving about it and uh and wanting to be helpful as uh as you're younger and you're not a professional quite yet so the the games that i did at maryland both those those great football games and then especially those hoops ncaa tournament games uh the access we got to to big time people within the industry was incredible yeah i i still think so fondly back on those days uh you did not invent the nickname pti did you no i did not uh i i've it's funny. I I talk to people about the moment in that brainstorming meeting, yeah. and depending on who you ask, their recollection of the story <laughs> is a little bit different. But I will give you my recollection. Okay. So in two thousand and one, I was going into my junior year. It was the summer of two thousand one. I was in college, and University of Maryland, for those who don't know, is located only about twenty minutes from Washington D.C. So you're right there. You can get on a metro and and be in the heart of the city. I got invited just through some people I knew from previous jobs. There was a brainstorming session at the Mayflower Hotel in in Washington, D.C., and they were brainstorming ideas for this new show that was going to be on ESPN. It was going to replace Up Close. Uh, what? Yeah. You remember Up Close? <laughs> no. No. All right. Well, for those of us of a certain age, Joel, Up Close was the Not show. Not much younger than you. Yeah. Well, at 530, Roy Firestone. Gosh. Come on, the end of the movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire. He he. Oh well, yeah. Yeah, Roy Firestone. That's the show that. Oh okay. That uh, that Cuba Gooding is on when he finds out he gets his contract extension. Okay. Okay. So anyway, up close was the show. It was getting canceled, and they were going to put in a new show. It was going to be filmed in Washington D.C. It was going to star Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon, who were writers for the Washington Post at the time. And that was all they knew about the show. That's what it was. It was two people, and they were going to be the stars, and it was a half hour. And they were having this brainstorming session at this hotel to figure out how they were going to make that concept an effective television show. And I got invited only because they wanted some college students. They figured that would be a big audience for this show. And they wanted someone who knew a little bit about television. And I, I kind of did at the time. So anyway, somehow I, I worked my way into being invited to this brainstorming meeting. I just remember walking in and there was Tony and there was Mike. And John Walsh, the head of ESPN programming, was there and... There were people from Radio City Music Hall, uh, a guy who worked for the Children's Television Workshop. He, he was very involved with the, uh, the with uh, Sesame Street. And I'm, I'm sitting there just most of the day just thinking, what in the world am I doing here? <laughs> but in, in the course of that probably six, seven-hour brainstorming session that we had, there had been a suggestion that the name, which was Pardon the Interruption, that had been given by Mark Shapiro, who was at the time the big grand poobah at ESPN. Shapiro said, the show is going to be called Pardon the Interruption. And nobody in the room liked it. They said, no, that's too long. It's, it, it doesn't say what it is. So there was discussion about, well, what do we do with this name? And this is my recollection of the story. It may be embellished. But I had worked for a show at Comcast Sportsnet in Philadelphia that was called Daily News Live, Philadelphia Daily News, and it was their reporters. They did an hour-and-a-half talk show in the afternoon. They called it Daily News Live. But everybody called the show DNL. I said, oh, DNL. So I just raised my hand. I think it was the only time during the meeting that I raised my hand. And 
I said, you know, maybe people will just call the show PTI. <laughs> and then I remember somebody else raising his hand and saying, oh, and look here. In the word interruption, if you look at the way interruption is spelled, there's a P, a T, and an I right next to each other, and that can be the logo. And then everybody said, yeah, great. And, and then the, the, the discussion moved on. So that, that is my probably embellished recollection of the way that happened. That's not that far off. I mean, I don't know how it actually went down, but not far off. Like, you take credit for that. I, I don't think I should take credit for it. But You planted the seed. It would have happened regardless of whether or not I raised my hand. <laughs> no question about that. Um, I want to ask you some kind of philosophical questions just about kind of finding your way in the business, too. Uh, and then I want to take too much of your time because I know you got a game. Um, but through everything that we've kind of talked about and all the stops and places you've gone and things you've dealt with, uh, did you ever get to a point as a broadcaster where you said, I don't know if I can do this? And like, it's, I'm at a point where I feel like I'm spinning my wheels and I don't. I don't know, like, what do I have to do to keep moving forward? Maybe I should go work in advertising or be a teacher or something like yes. that. Yes, and and to be totally honest with you, all the time. And it still happens and is happening because we're all hoping to move faster than than we're capable of moving, right? I mean, that's just the 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 way that our our, our minds are, are wired. How do you push through that? Uh, I think that's a good question. I've, I've made it this far. I think you have to be able to a handle rejection. Uh, I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty sensitive as uh, just in a general, and so that's over these years been I think the hardest part is getting over the fact that when you're not considered for a job or when you're rejected from from a position that you think you could have been qualified for, not taking it personally, not thinking that it's a knock on your abilities and and your your talents, your qualifications for a position. It's just not. The years that I've been doing play-by-play, every single year it gets harder and harder to get new jobs. It just does. And I think... It's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, it, and it is. But you can probably agree with this. Even five years ago, some of the things that you and I would, would be hoping to attain would have been way more attainable than they are today. And uh, it's just because... The proliferation, I think, of play-by-play opportunities has created an even bigger pool of people that want to do it. Uh, the industry has skewed younger, which is crazy. I never thought that. But some of the positions that I go for now are being given to people that are 10 years younger than I am. And I'm being told that, well, you're, you're kind of past. Which like speeds up your own clock internally. Because, yeah. And, yeah. You know, as we said, I'm 35. I, I Theoretically, I thought, okay, I should be kind of coming into my prime. Uh, so all that's kind of going on. And... I deal with it all the time. Uh, how how do you move past that and keep going? The biggest thing is you have to remind yourself you're lucky to have any job that you have, and I am. I'm very fortunate to have the positions that I've been able to get to. And you also have to remind yourself the work that you've put in to get where you are. Um, and I do the. I, I'm trying to do this now. But look, remember when you got hired at UMass? I tell myself. How happy were you? How how great of an accomplishment did that seem? Well, that was eight years ago now, and it feels like, all right, well, maybe did you think you were going to be at UMass for nine years? No, but is that a bad thing? You know, when you got hired in Pawtucket, what a great coup that was. You never thought that you'd be considered for the for the job that everybody considers, okay, this is kind of the crown jewel of, of minor league play-by-play. Uh, so so you get it, and then you end up, uh, up kind of questioning uh, – 
later on, all right, well, can, how do I move past this? How, how do you make it a, how do you make it the next step? But I think uh, it, it's important to remind yourself of where you came from and remind yourself that sometimes the, uh, the other side isn't always necessarily greener and, and you have to appreciate what you've got. What separates in your mind, uh, and I guess we'll, we'll wrap up on this note, uh, good from great. When you sit down and say, I'm a good broadcaster, I want to be a great broadcaster. Or, like, you know, when I listen to my own stuff, like, I feel like, I don't, I don't think this is arrogant or cocky, I feel like I'm a good broadcaster. But I always sit down and I think, how do I become a great broadcaster? What are the things that you kind of think about and say, uh, this is what separates people and this is what I should try to do um, because I want to obviously be at that level. Well, I think there's two things. The first is, and this is something that I work on all the time, I already mentioned it, the ability to tell a story effectively. I, I think that is the greatest skill that the greatest play-by-play broadcasters have. How do you tell a story, whether it's in the game or something not having to do with the game at all, how do you tell that story and make it sound effective and also interweave it with your play-by-play? I think that's the hardest part of what we do. Um, that's number one. And two, it's the ability to rise to a big moment and make it sound pure. Listen to Vince Scully, obviously, but listen to Marv Albert. Listen to Mike Emmerich call hockey. I think Joe Buck is great. A lot of people don't. I think he's good. I think he's really Joe good. Joe Buck can rise to a moment now. He's gotten better at it over the years. Uh, can you nail the big moment? I think a lot of us would like to say that we can, but if you're going to be a great broadcaster, the greatest, do it better than anybody else. Uh, Now, I'll say also, just as a caveat to that answer, I think it's hard to be a great broadcaster sometimes until you have great games to broadcast. And that is what makes it stout... Uh, it, you know, you can be you can be fantastic. You can have all the chops and the the skill in the world to do it. But if you're if you're calling kind of mediocre, bad, low A baseball games in front of 500 people, it's going to be hard to sound great no matter what you do. Well, and then it's having finding the way to do that as best you can, which is the the challenge that I know you've dealt with. I've dealt with it too. We all we all have. Always tell yourself when you're doing play by play. Always tell yourself you never know who's listening, and if it's a bad game and you're bored. Can you imagine how bored the person listening is? So I try to challenge myself, and it's hard. It's especially hard during baseball season. Challenge yourself, how can I always make this interesting? And if it's 9-1, to one, how do I make people want to keep listening and keep them from going to do something else? Josh, I, I mean, I, I could dovetail off of that even now too, but uh, I want to let you get to your, your game and your prep, and uh, you've been generous with your time, so I appreciate you stopping by. This is by. great. Yeah, thanks so much for coming down here, and it's always good to catch up with you, Joel. Josh Maurer of the Pawtucket Red Sox and the University of Massachusetts uh, Minutemen. And it's funny. I mean, I even said to Josh in there, I go, you've been with the Paw Sox for, what, 2014? So this is his third year with the Paw Sox. And what are you still doing? Pawtucket is is one of those jobs that is so sought after in this industry uh, for a lot of different reasons. They respect their broadcasters for what they are, um, which a lot of minor league places do, and a lot of minor league places don't sometimes. Uh, but they also have a, a really good eye for hiring talent, and a lot of that goes to their ownership and Bill Wanless, who works in communications for them. But you go through that litany of guys from, uh, you know, Aaron Goldsmith most recently to Dan Horde to Bob Sosi, uh, Dave O'Brien on down the list guys that have been Pawtucket Red Sox broadcasters and they just kind of 
they're like a ultimate farm system for major league broadcasters. It has to get nauseating for them hiring new ones uh, after a while. But um, hey, if you get that job, uh, it says a lot about who you are and it says a lot about uh, where you can go in this industry. And if you didn't know Josh Maurer's name, certainly you know it now and certainly uh, a lot more people are going to know it in the future. So I'm glad that uh, we got a chance to catch up with him and and talk about uh, kind of a lot of the, the different psychologies of this business that we got into different conversation than we've had in the past so i'm glad that josh opened up uh really along those lines that being said uh we will hightail it for this week and see you next friday reminder as always you can communicate with the podcast if you'd like to ask questions voice comments or concerns uh use the hashtag pxpcast or you can find me on twitter at joel godet j-o-e-l-g-o-d-e-t-t again hashtag pxpcast if you enjoyed the podcast go ahead and rate us uh give us a review five stars three stars two stars if you know if, if we're getting to two stars just skip the review but uh we appreciate all, all all voicings and comments and concerns. Uh, if you rate it, iTunes really appreciates it. It it helps them vault us up in the charts and continue to get guests and all that kind of stuff as well. Uh, so if you listen to us on Stitcher or iTunes, give us those ratings and reviews, and uh, we enjoy you uh, keep coming back week after week. They are playing the music, though, so that is my cue to get on out of here. We will see you next Friday morning, another edition of Play by Playcast right here on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. Until then, my name's Joel Gadet. We'll see you. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.